Keep in touch with the Wolf Connection podcast on our Instagram handle at the Wolf Connection pod or email us your questions, comments, and guest ideas to podcast at wolfconnection.org. Thank you for your support and howls to you all. Welcome to the Wolf Connection podcast. I'm your host, John Calvin. Yes, this has been uh, an individual we have been looking to get on for quite some time. I think it actually started on our first trip in Yellowstone National Park, probably around 2021. I think there was a photo. We saw some of his photos around. He's written two wolf books, among other things. His photography is absolutely phenomenal. He's coming to us from Alberta, Canada, right by Banff Banff National Park. He's a full-time nature photographer for 24 years, but he's been photographing for over 30. He is John E. Mariette. John, this is great that you're finally with Stephen and I to talk wolves, to talk all your photography, all the incredible work you've done. How you doing, sir? Good. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad we finally caught up together. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's great. Um, Stephen was just here too, and he's he's an avid photographer also. And he's he's always I love because Stephen always brings like the technical aspect in, but also um, he's so great that uh, you know we, we wanted to, I want to make sure he was here for this one too with you. Um, just tell everybody, I guess right off the bat. How how you got started in photography? Because for doing it for three decades, there has to be a love and a passion early on. What was that journey like for you to begin with? So my journey started as a little kid, um, like I think many people that end up working in uh, you know with wildlife uh, full time. Um, when I was uh, you know a little toddler, I would play around with toy wolves and lions and stuff instead of little trucks like most little boys did um and i was introduced to fishing at an early age by my dad my dad was a an outdoorsman he hunted and he fished he actually gave up hunting when i was three years old so i i never hunted myself but uh grew up in that outdoor environment constantly fishing constantly going camping um i grew up in british columbia canada and a fairly small mountain town of about 10,000 people. So I had a lot of rural wilderness around um, and was only about four to five hours drive away from driving to the Rocky Mountains and being able to go camping. And so we went uh, to the Rockies every year and camped. And that's where I kind of got introduced to elk and bears and all that kind of stuff. I actually didn't see my first wolf, though, uh, until I moved to Banff permanently uh, at the age of 21 back in 1992. Um, and I remember it very vividly was driving between Banff and Lake Louise, two of the most famous landmarks in the area, and uh, driving along the highway and glanced across the river and went, oh, geez, someone let their dog out. Like there's a, there's a German shepherd running around on the opposite side of the river. And then literally the next millisecond, it clicked in my head, went, oh, my gosh, it's a wolf. And, you know, pulled over and did everything you're not supposed to do. I ran over to the edge of the river, out of my car, and the wolf ran away instantly, and that was, you know, the encounter was over. And uh, that was that was my first taste of, of wild wolves and completely blew it. It was long before I got into photography. Um, so a couple of years later, I, I got a job with Parks Canada. Um, I had just finished my degree. I'd gone to school at University of British Columbia and at the University of California, Berkeley, and had studied wildlife management under, under a forestry, a Bachelor of Science degree. And that got me in with Parks Canada. And I moved to Banff National Park. And I started working as what at the time was called a, a, a naturalist or a guide interpreter. And so I would interpret nature to people. I would go out and I would give um, slideshows and guided hikes and things like that. And that was when I was 24 uh, and 25, 24, 25, 26 years old. And in that position, I got exposed to all sorts of people that not only loved wildlife and the outdoors, but were really interested in nature photography. And I'd actually, as a little kid, when I was six years old, got given a Kodak Instamatic. And I'd gone out and I'd taken all kinds of wildlife shots on all my camping trips. And I'd actually kept photo albums of all these little tiny specks off in the distance and terrible photos of, you know, bare bums beside telephone poles and things like that. And I actually still have the photo albums, but I graduated in in high school to my mom's uh, Pentax ME Super with a a set of Vivitar lenses that each weighed, I don't know, there was like, the zoom lens was like 10 pounds. It was just a crazy metal thing. 
Um, and I would photograph a bit with that, but I kind of, you know, as I left high school and went into university, I kind of forgot all about photography, even while I went off pursuing a, a degree in wildlife management. And it wasn't until I came to Banff and started working for parks and saw all these people taking pictures that I started going, whoa, that's super cool. I got to get back into that again. So I remember going back home and convincing my mom to, to actually give me that Pentax ME Super as opposed to loaning it to me and had all these lenses and I went out and it was back like 1993, 1994. And I, I started going out and taking pictures on slide film and had kind of a watershed moment where I, I took these photos in and I was in the Parks Canada office and they got these big light boxes, these big, huge three foot by two foot light boxes. And you'd stick your slides on them and you look at them through a little loop, through a little magnifying glass. And I thought I was taking all these amazing photos. And this guy from the, from the tech AV department came walking by and I said, hey, Jerry, come and look at this stuff. And he came in and he just went, hmm, yeah, hmm. Was, and then he walked away and I was like, what? Like, what, what how are these not awesome? Like, and so, I, so I ran after him and was like, he's like, they're, they're just not that good, John. They're like, they're, you know, you, you got a lot of work to do. And, and he said, start looking through the Parks Canada collection and see what, you know, what good photos look like. And so I started going through and going, oh boy, like I got a lot of work to do and, and I've got a, a lot of work to do to improve the sharpness of them. And so I realized I'm going to have to spend some money and get some new lenses, ditch my mom's old gear. And so in 1994, I switched over to Canon, bought my first real camera, um, invested in a couple lenses. Very quickly after that, um, went on a trip all the way across Canada, drove uh, 23,000 kilometers. So it was like 15,000 miles there and back to Newfoundland and back and got all these photos again and it's they still weren't good enough and so i had done that in this beautiful yellow vw van that i had spent all my money on and i realized okay time to sell my beloved van and i bought my first big telephoto lens a canon 500 millimeter f 4.5 shelled out eight grand for it and that was my that was 1995 and that was my first step into okay, now I'm going to be taking wildlife photography seriously. In 1996, I made my first sale. Um, I started big. It was to Canadian Geographic magazine, which is an affiliate of National Geographic. Um, it was a picture of grizzly bears, a, a mother and two cubs walking through the snow up heading towards hibernation. And I thought, okay, here we go. First sale, Canadian Geographic. I'm going to just start watching the money roll in. And I made myself a website. So I was one of the first photographers out there to make themselves a website, but the money did not roll in. That first year, 1996, I made $717. And when I say I made $717, that was my gross sales. I think my expenses were like $21,000 or something. So I was, uh, I was not giving up my day job with Parks Canada, let's put it that way. So it took me four years to get to the point where the year 2000, where I actually went full-time, stopped all the other little part-time jobs I was working, and I'd by then long left Parks Canada. And it was, a, it was a struggle the first couple of years. Like I had to go to the bank of mom and dad a couple of times um, and, and get loans to pay my rent. Um, I, I paid them all back eventually, but it was, uh, it was a struggle. I had my first book come out in 2007, so seven years later. Um, and it was a book aimed at tourists coming to Banff National Park, and it did extremely well. It's, uh, it's an international bestseller. It sold almost 35,000 copies now at this point. Um, so from there, I kind of piggybacked and did another book called Wildlife of the Canadian Rockies in 2008. And in 2009, I started working uh, with a wolf researcher called Gunter Block, and he was a German fellow who had worked for Parks Canada right when they had first started studying wolves. So, so wolves actually were absent from the Canadian Rockies from Banff National Park uh, from the 1950s until the 1980s. Um, in the 1950s, there was a big rabies outbreak and there was a huge cull program that went on across Canada and the US and wolves were eradicated completely from Banff National Park. Um, cougars were almost as well, grizzly bears almost as well. 
Um, so wolves didn't sort of recolonize or recolonize until late 1970s, early 1980s. And when they started coming back in, Parks Canada started studying them and they had no real idea how to go in and approach dens. So they approached this German uh, dog expert. He was kind of the Caesar Milan of, of Germany, um, wrote all these dog books and was super famous in Germany. And he was known as a behavioral expert. So Parks Canada hired him and brought him over, him and his wife. And they, the, him and his wife would sneak in and observe wolf dens and count how many pups there were and what kind of behavior was going on. And they would do that for all these different packs that were starting to establish in Banff National Park and in Kootenai National Park and Yoho National Park. So we've kind of got a, a little conglomerate here of uh, four big national parks that are all tied together with a number of other protected areas. And together it all creates the UNESCO World Heritage Site. So, uh, so it's, you know, right up there um, with the Great Barrier Reef and, uh, you know, the pyramids in Egypt and all this other stuff that is, is world famous. And so Gunter worked for Parks Canada for about, I don't know, I think, I think a decade or so and had a big blowout with them over their management of wolves and ended up working on his own, um, kind of independently affiliated with uh, one of Canada's most famous wolf biologists, Dr. Paul Paquette. Um, so by the time 2009 rolled around, Gunter was studying uh, the Bow Valley Wolf Pack, which had started in 2004 and in 2009 had a, a real, um, a couple of incidents in a row with wolves getting hit on the highway that completely unraveled the pack and they all died off basically. Um, and a brand new pack came in and Gunter named them the Pipestone Wolf Pack. And he wanted to do a long-term project on them. And at the time I had started working with him a little bit and he was like, hey, do you wanna come and do this project with me? And he said, you're gonna to have to come out every single day and you're gonna do the photographs and we'll make a book project out of this. And so from 2009 to 2013, I went out about 200 days a year with Gunter and on my own, sometimes Gunter would go out back to Germany and be doing his talks and his book promotions and stuff. And it would just be me by myself. Um, but I basically went out and photographed this wolf pack for four or five years straight. And this led to the creation of the Pipestone Wolf book, um, which, uh, which is currently sold out, unfortunately, but there's a there's a new edition coming out in 2024, spring of 2024. So it'll finally be available again uh, to people that are interested in reading that whole story. And it's a it's a fascinating story because it was kind of when I, when Gunter and I first started going out um, in 2009, 2010, as this pack first moved in and took over um, from the Bow Valley Wolf Pack. So this was the Pipestone Wolf Pack moving in and taking over between Banff and Lake Louise for people that have been up into this area before. Um, and it's a protected area. You know, it's a national park. There's no hunting, there's no trapping. What wolves have to deal with is people. So imagine Yellowstone, but then place Yellowstone into the middle of, you know, Yosemite with all those people just coming, hordes and hordes of people. And then throw a couple of towns in there, the town of Banff, there's the town of Camor just outside the park boundary. And then there's the municipality of Lake Louise, um, so there's all these little towns, there's a national highway going through the middle of the national park and a national railway. So there's tons of cars, there's four lane highway, um, people driving fast. Um, they've done all kinds of things to try and mitigate that. They've fenced the highway, they've built wildlife overpasses so that wolves can get from one side of the highway to the other without having to be on the highway. Um, so. There was all this interesting stuff going on as we started this project and trying to figure out how are these wolves going to survive with all these people around. So Banff National Park gets about 5 million visitors a year. So, you know, it's, it's right on par with Yellowstone, but it's much more condensed than that. It's not like Yellowstone where you can drive along the roads and then you can see off way into the distance. Instead, Banff is very condensed and, you, you know, when you're driving along the roads, you can sometimes only see 50 yards or 100 yards off to the side. Um, so to find these wolves was really tricky. So Gunter would usually go out 
So I'll give you an example of what a winter day would look like in 2009 or 2010. So winter, it gets light here at about 8 a.m. Gunter would go out at 4 a.m. I would go out at about 6 a.m. and meet up with him. Um, and hopefully by that point, he had already found the wolves. Um, if he hadn't, then we would split up and we would go off and he would mostly drive back and forth. He had a dog um, that would smell for the wolves out of the back of the car that was trained to do that. I would go off and then start doing transects and running down to various points, checking for tracks. Um, so eventually over the course of a couple of days or a week, we would find the wolves. And then once we were, had found them, it was much easier day by day by day to keep picking them up repeatedly. Now, a lot of times we go out there and, you know, we'd see all this stuff happen and it'd be at like 7 a.m. And I couldn't even photograph. It was too dark. But every once in a while, you know, once a month, once every two months, you'd get this glorious day where the wolves would walk along beside us, sometimes right beside the road, um, you know, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. And I would get, you know, thousands of photos. <laughs> and, it, and that's kind of how the whole book went is, you know, if you were to go through the book, I would literally go, you know, oh, this was, these ones were all on this day. And then two months later, these ones are all on this day. And then two months later, these ones are all on this day. Even though we're going out every single day, it just didn't mean you were going to have success. You just had to continuously put, keep putting in that time and that effort. And then summertime got much, much harder because there were many more tourists around and a lot more traffic on the roads. So there would be big periods of time where I wouldn't even go out. I would just find it too busy. And I, I think, you know, I'm not going to get anything. So... As this project wore on, 2011, 2012, 2013, the park started to get busier and busier. And it was the advent of social media. And, and you know, even I played a role in that, in posting pictures of some of the wolves that I was seeing. So people, other photographers were coming out trying to find these wolves. And I remember a point in 2013, we, we were, Gunter and I had agreed we were going to do the project until 2014. We we're going to do a full five years, 2009 to 2014. And uh, in 2013, summer of 2013, there was a day where I was out and the wolf pups came out onto the road and there were like 10 vehicles there and there more and more vehicles kept piling up. And again, it's not like Yellowstone where 10 vehicles is nothing. You know, you can have a hundred vehicles on the road there and the wolves have plenty of space to roam around. In Banff, if there's 10 vehicles there and you've only got 50 yards on either side of the road, you can imagine how crowded it feels and how how much impact it feels like you're having on that those walls and on the behavior. And so this had been happening more and more often. And I finally just decided, okay, I, you know what? I'm I'm contributing more to the problem. I've already got enough images for the book. I'm going cold turkey. And I just left the pack altogether. And Gunter finished the project off. He finished off his, his scientific analysis of things. Um, into 2014, and then we published that book. But you can imagine, you know, anybody that that is addicted to something. And at that time, I was fully addicted to wolves. Um, you know, every day going out, I was very lucky. My my wife was very accommodating of this. I got married in 2010, and so she kind of, you know, right from first meeting me, kind of knew that's part of the John Marriott experiences. You know, you, you, he, he's going to be going out a lot and he's going to be away a lot in the, the mornings and the, the afternoons and the evenings and so on. So I was J July of 2013 and I'd gone to cold turkey and I just right away, the itch just started growing and growing. And I'm like, what am I going to do? I got to find another wolf project, something else to do. And I was driving up to, to Jasper, which is about 150 miles from here, another national park. I was driving over to Kananaskis country, which is about 50 miles south of here. And it's a big, huge protect, provincially protected area. So sort of like a state federal protected area. Um, but nothing was really like there were wolves, but nothing was clicking for like an interesting story to tell. And uh, I remember the day very specifically, it was August 13th, 2013. And I had just come back from a trip down to this Kananaskis protected area. And I was just so disappointed. I was like, there's not, there's no story that like there's wolves, but nothing I can, you know, nothing that's going to captivate people for a, for a book project or for something. And 
as I was driving back into cell range, I got a phone call from a buddy who worked for Parks Canada. And he's like, hey, what are you up to? And I told him what was going on. He's like, oh, man, you should have been should have been down in Kootenay this morning. We had a, a, a wolf got hit by a transport truck in the middle of the night. And when I went up to go drag it off the road, there were seven wolves like feeding on it. And he's like, I have no idea who these wolves are. And I was like, what? I'm like, what do you mean no idea? Well, what? And he's like, well, we know there's a pack down here, but nobody knows anything about them because they go outside the park and they get trapped and shot and stuff. But then they spend like 70% of their time in the park and we haven't studied them since the 1990s. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. So it was middle of the day. It was like noon. And I drove out there anyways. And I knew there was going to be, you know, it's August. It's the Canadian Rockies. It's a highway. There's traffic all over the place. RVs going. And I was like, I'm driving out there anyways. And I get out there. And he kind of described the spot to me. And as I'm driving along, I actually saw the blood stain of where they had dragged this bull moose off the road, Parks Canada put it in the truck and hauled it away. And I got out and cars are whizzing by and I can actually see these bloody wolf prints of a wolf that had been in the cavity of the moose and then stepped out and left these bloody wolf prints on the road. And I'm like, oh, that is so cool. And as I'm walking along looking at these wolf prints, I glance up and there's a wolf standing there like a hundred yards away, just staring at me. And uh, middle of the day, like literally noon, and there's cars everywhere. And I'm like, what the heck? There's this big male wolf just standing there staring at me. And so I quickly go and jump back in my car. And he comes over and he's sniffing around everywhere looking for this moose. And I'm like, sorry, buddy, it's gone. But I knew right then and there, <laughs> I had a story. I had something. I got, I got to figure out who are these wolves? Where do they go? What do they do? And that led to the project uh, that ended up being called, uh, the, the book that ended up being called The Kootenai Wolves, Five Years Following a Wild Wolf Pack. So I will, uh, yeah. I've blabbed on here now for about half an hour straight here. So I'll let you guys ask some questions now. And uh... <laughs> No, that's great. John, what I'll, what, I'll, what I'll say, I mean, yeah, you're, and I think we mentioned this as we, prior to us starting recording, is that when you were working with, with Gunter, you were making sure like you were learning this all on the fly with him and understanding how to, how to track, how to, where these wolves were going to be. So going into the Kootenai project where it's just you going out at, I'm sure early hours of the morning, did that make this, what, what made that project different in more than the obvious ways other than it's just you and you know, not having a, a, a biologist or someone there who, who sort of knows behaviors. So what for you as a photographer are the hats that you're wearing on a daily, monthly basis that you say, okay, I'm going to study this pack for five years. What is that going to entail? And what knowledge do I have to have on hand at all times? Yeah, great questions, John. So, um, you know, going into it with Gunter, I had a very... I had a rudimentary knowledge of, of course, wolf biology from, from university, from, from working with Parks Canada, um, you know, I had read lots of books, things like that. But to actually know a wolf in the wild is, is much different than reading a book or than, than uh, you know, trying to learn without actually being out there. Um, and so being out, and, and there's two different aspects of it. One of them is, is being in a vehicle. Um, you know, there's a very certain way that wolves react to vehicles. And uh, that was a huge learning process with Gunter, knowing what you can do and what you can't do. You know, you can't be stopped on the side of the road, see wolves cross up ahead and just drive up there and expect them to still be sitting there. Like that's going to spook them and cause them to, to, you know, go deeper into the bush or, or not come back out again. Um, however, you know, the flip side of that, then once you learn is you see wolves up ahead, you just sit there quietly in your vehicle as you are, don't turn it on. Don't make any noise. Don't get out and walk around, just sit there and be amazed how many times it unfolds that the wolves just end up coming towards you and you're able to, to get your photographs. And again, I will point out, you know, the difference between being in Yellowstone where you see these, well, you know, you might see them the first time three miles away and you slowly see them coming your way. And, you know, by the time they get to the road, you know, there's 300 cars there because everybody can see them coming. 
in Banff National Park, it was much different, particularly in the early years with Gunter. You know, sometimes Gunter would say, you know, they're coming. And, and I would just have to trust him, you know, that his dog was smelling something um, uh, or, or that he had seen something earlier before I'd gotten there, you know, knowing what direction they were they were heading. Um, and, and I slowly over those five years learned the patterns of that Pipestone Wolf family. Um, and it, it was a, Banff was a, is, is a very busy park compared to where my next project, this Kootenai project was in Kootenai National Park, um, which at times was extremely quiet, even having a major highway through it. Um, so I, going into that second project, I knew it was gonna be way more challenging. You know, there, were, there was nobody to lean on. I didn't have any Parks Canada people to, to, to lean on or old studies to go and read. I had really old studies, like from 25 years prior. Um, and that, but they didn't mention any locations, anything like that. So I was really going into a completely blind and, and I loved that. I loved that I was gonna have to, to do everything. So a lot of the Kootenai project was on foot um, because the wolves, in particular, in the last three years of the five-year project, the the wolves that had been quite used to the road ended up getting hit or dis or disappearing, dispersing off into other areas. And by the end of my project, the wolves weren't really coming near the road at all, or if they were, it was during the night. And so the only way I was able to see them was by learning their patterns and figuring out where all the rendezvous spots were, figuring out where the den site was, figuring out how do I observe the wolves at these rendezvous spots and at this den site without blowing it? Because of course, it doesn't do me any good to find the den site. And then I go in and photograph it. And the first day I get discovered and the wolves abandon the den site, that, that would do nobody any good. It's certainly the wolves no good and wouldn't do any good for my project. So I had to go into anything. I was, I was analyzing Google Maps and Google Earth continuously. I had a full Google Earth, um, all the satellite imagery downloaded to my phone. So I'd be, you know, creeping around in the bush. There's no cell service out there. Um, so I would always have sort of a, I would have my bear spray on me, um, a big knife, a uh, satellite device, a safety device, and then my phone. And I would just be going and, and trying to hone in on different areas, especially the first two years, of where I thought there might be rendezvous sites. And this was going off knowledge I knew from the Pipestone Pack, from learning from Gunther, and then trying to apply it to this new area and thinking where might, you know, what's a suitable spot where they might be. And so I was just going spot by spot and hiking into all these different areas. And I, that first fall was able to uncover one of the major uh, rendezvous spots. And then that second year, I uncovered all the other major rendezvous spots, um, both before and after wolves were actually at them and while wolves were there. Um, and, and one of them, I'll give you an example. So one of them was fairly close to the road, and yet the wolves almost never showed up on the road. And so I found it by going and checking all these different spots, and it was down by a river, um, it was a, a kind of an open burned out area. Um, and so I was analyzing Google Earth and trying to figure out, okay, how do I get in there? How do I, because, you know, of course, with, with wolves, when you're on foot, much different than in a vehicle, because on foot, you have to be paying attention to all the senses. You know, you, they can't hear you. You can't have them see you. You definitely can't have them smell you. Um, so, you know, I was really trying to figure out, okay, how do I approach? What's the downwind way of approaching? You know, I have to be upwind of them, or sorry, downwind of the, I always get confused, upwind, downwind, but I have to be basically um, having the wind blow from them to me. And it has to happen all the time. I can't have wind swirling or change direction when I'm sitting in at my spot. So I had to figure all that out with Google Earth. And I would go in, um, after I discovered where all the rendezvous spots were, I would go in late in the fall and just analyze every single inch of those rendezvous spots when I knew the wolves weren't there and go, okay, where is a spot where A, I might be able to get some photographs and B, I'm not gonna disturb them. And then I had a hard and fast rule with all these rendezvous spots and with the den site that if I ever got discovered, I had to abandon it and that was it. And so this is where you know, the ethics of being a, a wolf photographer have to come into play. Um, you know, again, I had to keep in mind that these are wolves that 
step outside of the national park. This is one of the fascinating parts about this story is they spent 30% of their time out in a provincial area that, that basically is like state federal land, like crown land, where they do get trapped and shot at. And so I was super cognizant of that and knew, you know, it's similar to a lot of areas in Yellowstone where, you know, now you know, people are out there viewing all these walls and they get used to the people and then they step one foot outside for 1% of their life and they get shot or they get trapped. Um, so this was a story that I was slowly uncovering as I went through these five years and, uh, you know, figuring out all these rendezvous spots, figuring out where I could hide. And I actually had, a, in one of the rendezvous spots, I did get discovered in my third year. And it was, it's, it's in the book. It's a fascinating story. Um, I'll give you the Coles Notes version of it, but I was sitting in at my spot, which in, in the national parks, they're legal to use a blind. Um, so I'm wearing full camo from head to toe, but I'm not allowed to have any kind of a tent structure or any kind of a cover over top of myself. Um, so I am basically embedded inside of a tree. I've kind of, you know, got this little spot and I shove my lens through these tree branches and I just wedge myself right in there. And it's just off of a wolf trail, um, but it's a lightly used wolf trail. The wolves for the majority of the time come from the other direction. So the wind blows from the rendezvous spot back to me. I've got kind of this opening where I'm viewing this little meadow about 120 yards away from me. So I got on my 500 millimeter lens with a 1.4 teleconverter um, so that if wolf pups or adult wolves come into that opening, I can photograph them. And I got kind of this little window, maybe about 20 feet wide by, uh, by I don't know, 50 or 70 feet, the window of this little meadow 50 or 70 feet deep. So anyways, I'm sitting in there and all of a sudden I hear a bark. So I've seen two pups so far in the little meadow and I hear a bark off to my left and I'm like, uh oh, like barks are not good. When you hear a wolf bark like a dog, it's a warning, it's an alert. It's, you know, catastrophic, something bad's going on. And I slowly turn my head and glance over to my left out of my kind of camo mask and I can see the alpha male, one of the, sorry, he's not the alpha male, he's one of the big adult males. And I'd called him at that point, Hawkeye. Um, and he's staring at me. And I'm like, what the, how, how does he, how did he figure out I was here? So I have no idea if he walked up right behind me and sniffed me and then barked and ran over. So anyways, he's about 40 yards to my left, barking away. And I'm like, okay, I'm not gonna move because that's just gonna really excite him. I'm gonna wait until, He's gone. He's obviously figured out I'm here. And he then goes over and goes off into the opening. So he's now dead in front of me, about 100 yards in front of me. And he's still barking, staring right at me. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to slowly back out of here. And just, you know, I don't want to be there. There's obviously tremendous amount of concern on his part. And right as I'm thinking about I need to back up and get out of here, something walks by me on my right and brushes against the tree branches. And I glance over to my right, and it's a big grizzly bear called the boss. So I didn't know that at the time. I just knew it was a big grizzly bear. I just see this huge grizzly bear walking by me. And so he's about a, a at this time of the year, he's about a 550-pound male grizzly, which is quite big for an inland, you know, not, not a bear that doesn't get to eat salmon. Um, he basically just gets to eat berries and, and roots and things like that. So he's a big male. Um, so he goes walking by me, and as he walks by me, Hawkeye and two other adult wolves appear out of nowhere, and they attack this grizzly. So this is all happening right in front of me, like obscured by a couple trees, like 70 yards in front of me. And instead of thinking about taking photographs, all I'm thinking about is like, holy F, like, I got to get out of here. Like, they might chase him right back into me, and I've just got an adrenaline surgeon. I got my bear spray out. I pulled my knife out. All of a sudden, I think I get this clear view of the grizzly up on this little hill with two wolves trying to nip at him. And I'm like, I should take a picture. And it just, that lasts for like 10 milliseconds. And then I'm like, there's no way I can, I, I gotta get out of here. And so I, I quickly holster my knife, grab my camera, back up, and I just start getting out of there as quickly as I can. And I ended up circling all the way back up to the road and then hiking way on the other side of the highway up to this knoll 
that I had scouted out the year before of where I could observe the rendezvous site from afar. And I get way up there. And with binocs, I can actually see these three adult wolves chasing this grizzly all through the rendezvous site. Still, this is like 20 minutes later, and they're still chasing it around. Man, and uh, that so is wild. I'm like, oh, thank goodness I got out of there. So that was yeah. the last time I ever went into that rendezvous site. I had, you know, I made this deal with myself. And, you know, if you, as a photographer, you have to have your own principles, you have to have your own ethics. And for me, that was a line that I crossed, you know, wolves had discovered me. So I'm leaving that for them now. I know they use, they still use it every year. Um, they, you know, even now that the Kootenai wolf pack has died off and there's a new pack in there now, they still use it. And I, I know that from being able to go up to my knoll and observe from like a mile or that's like a quarter mile away, but I never go into the spot where I'm down in the rendezvous site anymore. Um, so, you know, that to me is, a, I'm, I'm quite proud of that. And it, yeah, you know, there's a number of things I'm proud of with the Kootenai Wolf Project. One of them is that I did it all myself. I uncovered all these secrets and I learned, you know, where the trapper was trapping them and how they avoided it and where they had danger of getting shot and where the, I found the den site in the fourth year, was able to observe it for an entire season without them ever discovering me. And then I just decided, okay, that's it. I don't need to go in there again. I got all my shots. I got them from when they were little tiny pups that, you know, literally would have fit in my hand when they would came out at five weeks old, um, wandering around uh, all the way to when they moved to the first rendezvous site, second rendezvous site, third rendezvous site, and then the fourth rendezvous site was the one that I said I wasn't going back into, so I didn't go in there with them, but uh, sort of followed them all the way along through that procession, and that's all in the book. You know, you can see all these different. Um, you know, it starts off; it's mostly roadside wolves, and then. As it gets deeper into the book and deeper into the project, it's me hiding out in the woods and I describe in great detail how I did it and, and uh, you know, how I was able to stalk in and, you know, what I had to watch for. And there were times when I had to extricate myself from situations. I had a one of the rendezvous sites once I had a wolf pup um, walk up to about 20 feet away from me and didn't, didn't realize that there was a human there. And I... I I kept talking, but, you know, my head was behind my camera and it, it was looking around and, you know, where's that sound coming from? And, and then finally I had to like stick my head out and lift my mask a little bit so it could see my face and said, hey, hey, get out of here. <laughs> but it was just as a you know, little young wolf puppet, so it turned and ran away and then I saw it, you know, it, to it, it didn't register that it still was, a, it just was, oh, there's something scary there and ran away. Um, so that, that wasn't getting discovered, you know, discovered was getting uncovered by an adult. That, that was much more serious. And that's where I would draw the line. Um, but I had all kinds of interesting things. You know, I got so good at stalking in on wolves that there were three different times where I walked in within 20 or 30 feet of a sleeping wolf before I would see it and go, oh, shoot. Okay. I got to back way out of here. And, uh, you know, so you, you know you're getting pretty good when you can walk in within 20 or 30 feet of a sleeping adult wolf, um, where you, you've managed to master the technique. And uh, so, it, you know, the entire project was was pretty amazing. It was it was scary every winter when because that's when the, the pack would leave the park um, and where I would then be driving but, you know, for me to get down into the, the PAX area was about an hour and a half drive from my house and then whatever hiking I would do. But to get down to their winter range was about a two hour drive. Um, and then it was it was pretty terrifying. You know, I, I ran into hunters a couple of times. I ran into the trapper that would trap right on the park boundary. Um, and uh, I remember running into him one Christmas Eve and him telling me he'd got three wolves and my heart just sinking and thinking, oh, please don't let those be my wolves. And me driving out to his trap set and analyzing all the tracks coming in and they'd come in from the opposite direction. It was actually a different pack, you know, still devastating to see that and to be, you know, that, you know, the, you know, wolf trapping is, is, is literally um, in most cases in Canada. And I think in the U S you know, it's, it's, white retired guys or guys that are out there just working a hobby you know they, they love the outdoors but their idea of 
being in the outdoors is quite different than mine. You know, there's that killing aspect. And uh, I just don't agree with it. And, uh, um, you know, I think probably a lot of your listeners don't agree with it. And it, uh, to me, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big waste of, you know, when I see how these packs and uh, I saw this family, how they operated and how they, you know, each dealt with each other and the behaviors and, you know, they had, they had formed this really intricate little network. And, you know, I'm pretty sure this family that lost three members to the trapper had the exact same thing. You know, all these wolf families have this and, and there's really no, you know, we know biologically now that there's no need to be out there and be managing wolf populations. You know, they do it themselves, the carrying capacity, um, interterritorial um, conflict, you know, these, these packs, if, you know, this pack from further south had come into the Kootenai wolf pack territory, there would have been a conflict and wolves may have died. And I'm sure that happened at times, just as it does in Yellowstone, just as it does up in Banff, uh, just as it does out in the wilderness in Minnesota or in Northern Saskatchewan or wherever you might be talking. Um, so wolves do not need people out there that have done a three-day trapping course and consider themselves to be experts in wolf management, um, you know, when they really aren't. And, you know, we already know all that. So the book touches on that side of conservation on, you know, how we really do need to start looking much differently at how we're managing wolves from a trapping perspective, from a hunting perspective, um, from a protection, you know, from a, a, a the, the, the truly incredible resource that they are and how vital they are to our ecosystems. You know, we have this biodiversity crisis going on worldwide right now. The last thing we really need to be doing is out there just willy-nilly killing wolves and grizzly bears and cougars and all of these apex predators that are at the top of our food chain that are really engineering the ecosystems below them. Um, so, you know, I, I think I'm probably for a lot of your listeners, this will be preaching to the converted, um, but it, it still is worth saying over and over again. Um, you know, you, uh, you know, and just because someone like me comes out and I'm, I'm very anti-trophy hunting, anti-wolf uh, trapping, but that doesn't mean I'm anti-hunting. Um, you know, there's a huge difference. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm totally fine with people hunting for sustenance to put food on their table, but don't try and tell me that you're out there trapping wolves to put food on your table when you're driving around in a $50,000, you know, big diesel truck and, and you got a snowmobile on the back and you got, you know, all, all these, you know, you're doing it on the weekends, every second weekend. And, you know, there, there's just so many holes in that argument um, that, uh, that I, I think part of why I wanted to do a book project on this was to create the awareness and continue to build on that awareness because I don't think people are really aware in Canada and the US that there is still so much trapping going on and um, indiscriminate hunting of our apex predators. And so I, I don't think there can ever be enough, enough media and news and books and, and videos about that because the more people they get aware of this and get fired up and you know are listening to this right now and going like f that like what the heck this is not right um then they donate to to help out or they get involved and they volunteer or they go to yellowstone and they see it for themselves and they go this is amazing i gotta support uh wolf conservation and studies and research and stuff and so the more we do that and the more we have you know me as a little kid you know, loving wildlife right from the get-go, and now I'm doing it as a career. Um, I, I just think we can't have enough of that. We can't have enough inspiration out there. And so I hope people that pick up my two books and any of my other books um, get inspired by it and and not only love the photographs, but love the stories and and get fired up when they read about the conservation issues and and, you know, what they can do to help with that. So when you're photographing species that are not always where you, you think they're going to be and there's so many variables and, and so maybe it's not productive to, to maybe it's most productive I should say to let the wild just present however it presents and capture the moments that are being offered up rather than being hung up on on specifics but do you find yourself having visions of the exact photograph that you really want and, and how often do you feel like you you get it with with all of these variables 
Yeah, so the, I mean, the variables in wolf photography, I mean, I, I always say wildlife photography itself is probably the most difficult type of photography um, because you don't get to choose the location, you go, don't get to choose what species show up or what they do, any of their behavior. So it's different than photographing a model or, a, a, you know, someone in sports or just about anything. You don't, get to, you don't get to choose the light. You don't get to choose the time of day. You, don't, you, know, you really don't have much control over anything other than when the animal shows up, you have control over your own technical and your own creative vision. So I have tons of visions of images that I, that I hope to get. Um, I would say I probably only get 10% of them in a project like this. Um, but I get a lot of other ones that I didn't think of in the first place. Um, you know, I got a, the, like the alpha male in this case, and it, we're, the term alpha, we don't really use it anymore. It's now the leading male. Um, but the male that was the, 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 the dominant male that uh, led the pack and that fathered all the, all the pups, his name was Whitey. And, you know, I had lots of visions of shots I wanted of him. Well, one day I got him crossing a creek. Um, that was not a shot that I, but it's been a great example of just something that, you know, oh, it was so cool. And I love the shot of him, you know, there's water splashing up and he's crossing through this creek and, and it's one of the ones in the book. And you can see him, he's got a beautiful white muzzle. He's, he's actually gray wolf, but, um, and gray in color, but he's got this beautiful white muzzle. So you can tell he's an older uh, wolf and he's, he's quite a big guy. Um, so that was an example of a vision that I didn't, wasn't a vision I had, but as an image, as soon as I got it, I was like, oh, wow, I can't wait to see that. And then when I pulled it up on the screen, I was like, oh, wow, nice. That's beautiful. Um, the, uh, the, the vision of, the, you know, the types of images I have or the, the types of images I want to get are often so hard to pull off in the field. Um, there's just so many factors and variables at play that even if you can get 10%, you're pretty pumped. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, when I put the book together and, and, you know, was looking at things and I was still thinking like, oh, this is, this is still pretty awesome. Like for instance, one of the, one of the shots I never got was uh, I wanted to go into the den site and photograph the den itself, like inside the den and things like that. But the day that I went in there um, to do that, so that's in, a, you know, I went in in August, so pups and wolves are long gone. Um, they've moved off to rendezvous sites by that point. But I went in there and I was nosing around. I first took a few photos with my phone. And then I noticed fairly recent sign that the wolves had been in there. So I just decided to leave. Um, and in the end, I decided to never go back and just not, you know, so I just never fulfilled that vision. But I was okay. It was a conscious choice that I made. And so that happens a lot. Um, you know, I, another vision of an image that I've always wanted to get that will tell a story, but it will be heartbreaking is a, a wolf caught in a snare. Um, you know, snares are how most trappers catch wolves in Canada and in the US. They're an indiscriminate type of trapping. Uh, they catch basically everything. They're set with a big metal loop attached to a tree or to a stump. And there's really no way that the trapper can ensure that a cougar doesn't walk into it, a moose doesn't walk into it, an endangered caribou, uh, a lynx, you know, whatever. Uh, somebody's dog for that instance a dog for that instance absolutely yeah, yeah. yeah. so that. so it's uh you know it it's an image that i really wanted um but kind of happy that i never got and that i have never gotten in my career you know it's great that i haven't you know in all the trap lines that i monitor that I haven't actually happened upon a wolf sitting in there before the trappers come and skinned it i've I've gone and unfortunately got lots of photos of skinned wolves and things like that that are terrible to see. But I didn't put any of that in the book. I don't, you know, I don't really want to gross people out. Um, the book is mostly, well, it's pretty much all just pretty wildlife pictures that tell tell the story. Um, but yeah, back to the question, lots of visions, but not necessarily, you don't necessarily fulfill a lot of them. <laughs> right. I mean, when you're when you're talking about these run-ins or these instances where you're talking with or or meeting or seeing hunters and trappers and people of the of that ilk, where how do those conversations typically go for you? Because you are, as you stated, anti-hunting to a certain degree, anti-trapping, um, meaning like hunting sustenance is fine, but you know, hunting predators or whatever. 
what's where where do those conversations go if they go anywhere productive or is it more just they're those individuals are in their lane and this is what they believe you know are there are there any minds that have you know you you've shown some of your photos do anybody does anybody sort of take a second a second look and say mm, maybe I shouldn't be doing this or or how does that typically go for you if you engage in those conversations or when you do so I don't generally engage in the conversations what I usually do is just play the you know random guy out in the bush thing and and now that is becoming a little bit more difficult as it become more and more recognizable um I'm <laughs> right fairly well known in hunting circles um as someone they don't necessarily want to engage with <laughs> um or, or they do want to engage with me in a way that I don't want them to you know so so I stay away from many situations that might get dangerous um but in those times when I have run into the hunters and trappers and stuff I've just played dumb and and you know oh what are you guys out here doing oh yeah you know and so engage them in a conversation now most of those happened that project was 2013 to 2018 so to do it now in 2023 would be a much riskier proposition for me as I was very prominent in the media um, when the grizzly bear hunt got banned in British Columbia and I've been very prominent in the media in in Alberta for things like trapping and, and stuff like that so I just have to be careful where I where I engage now I do um, get involved politically and, and speak with quite a few of the policymakers, and I also I don't necessarily hesitate to engage you know if, if people are in their lane and that's their lane I'm, I'm not going to try and change it I'd rather inspire the people that I know are in my lane um, to get more involved and to, to donate more money to get more involved volunteer wise things like that um, but I do um, think there is tremendous value in still keeping communication lines open um, with the hunting community as a whole. Um, so I don't um, kind of tar and paper everybody the same, you know, just because you're a hunter doesn't mean that, you know, you and I aren't going to have uh, lots of things in common and that we can't work together to protect habitat. Because really when it comes right down to it, a lot of this is, you know, particularly in the US and Canada, if we can protect habitat, we go a long, long ways to then we can argue afterwards about we should be shooting the wolf or trapping the wolf or whatever. So there are times when when I think it's very valuable to potentially team up um, with the opposition, if you want to call them that. Or although I don't necessarily think of as, uh, hunters as opposition. Trophy hunters, I do. Trophy hunters, I find, you know, I usually don't have much in common uh, when it comes to to you know, dealing with, you know, they, they want to kill things. And and I don't see that side of things. I just don't see any value in killing things for the sake of killing things, um, where you're not eating them, or you're not, uh, you know, providing some value. Um, and, and, you know, that's where they'll bring up the, the, the argument of, well, you know, we're managing predators and stuff. And I just, I just simply don't believe in that. Um, so, you know, it's not, not even my opinion, you know, there's biology out there, science, fact that backs up that you do not have to be out there managing the predators at least not managing their numbers from a population side of things you know you certainly still have to be managing um, wolves for instance in livestock livestock conflict um, things like that like there are still times when humans need to step in and be managing um, you know whether we like that idea or not uh, I think there still has to be um, times when we do step in and manage but um, just willy-nilly out there killing stuff uh, and, you know, randomly having Joe Smith out there hunting wolves. I mean, there's, there's just no value in that whatsoever. Um, it's not a conservation-oriented activity whatsoever. No, and we, we've, <clears throat> excuse me, we've talked at length on this, on this podcast, Stephen and I, with individuals who are engaging the other side or the, or the, the opposition or the opposite thought process in terms of hunters, ranchers, individuals like that, and also bringing to the table that there, there is a compromise in the middle somewhere called the radical middle for the most part. And really just understanding that there's a lot, like you said before, John, is that there, we have a lot more in common than we probably don't. And that I think if we got right down to it, you know, we, we probably see eye to eye on most of the things. 
I think you bring up a great point too about land and habitat use and you know I don't know how it is in Canada, but here in the U.S., especially in the West, there's a lot of public land that's being sold to private entities so that you can hunt on that, and it's being taken away from those people who maybe they only get a chance at an elk tag once in a while, and those prices go up. So now you're pricing out the the hunters or the individuals that are actually looking to do those things for sustenance, for getting that elk or that meat for their family for the winter for three quarters of the year, however much they can get out of it. So I think, yeah, there are definitely points where I hear you. There are points to speak the conversation. There are points where you, you know, stay in your land and you do your thing. Um, when you're, when you're doing this and again, those of you who are going to promote, uh, John's website and everything else, uh, once we get towards the end here, because it's, he is a, a plethora of beautiful photos, great books, things like that. So don't, don't worry about that. Um, when you're, when you're putting all this together, where do you see your role as, cause you say you're, you're share, you've shared two wonderful, two wonderful stories about these two books, two wolf books that you put together. Do you see yourself as this storyteller, conservationist, ethical photographer, or is there something a little bit more now that you've been doing it for three decades, that you're something that you want to achieve more in this arena? There's definitely more I want to achieve in the arena, although I do think that, you know, that summarizes me to this point would be storyteller, conservationist, um, photographer, um, wildlife advocate. Um, but I do think there's a lot of advocacy, like a lot, there's a lot of steps that we can start to take um, towards creating uh, wildlife management that is a bit more for all of the people, as opposed to just for the trappers and the hunters. Um, and, and it is a bit more all-encompassing. And by doing that would lead us into more habitat protection, better habitat use. You know, um, here in Canada, I'm sure same as, as in the U.S., you know, we have a lot of issues with, uh, with just access, um, both being too much access in some areas and, and no access in other areas because it's private land. Um, and, and I think it's the exact same in the U.S., um, but we, uh, I lost my train of thought there. Um, I hear you. Yeah. I mean, it's just trying to, it's trying to make sure that we all have the, really the, the right to, if, if at some point view at the very least view and take in the wildlife that's around us. I think absolutely. that's really what's, yeah. what's, what's getting into a lot of these points that Stephen and I have hit upon many times is that the consumptive community has a right, you know, or they have these, had these rights for a little bit longer, as opposed to the non-consumptive community, we, which are, you're talking about your wildlife watchers, your photographers, your advocates, conservationists, the one, so there's, there's a balance that's still trying to be struck between, I think these two factions and understanding that there is compromise to be had and that it's just a matter of really getting through the BS of of what you know what are the what are the deal breakers and what are the things that we can do because the the wildlife and the wild lands in both the United States and Canada are really for everyone and they should be you know you should be able to get to see those things uh, as much as possible um is there another wolf book in your future john or do you think that you're moving or is like cuz i know you have kootenai you have a uh, uh, pipeline. Pipestone. What is there anything? Pipestone. I'm sorry. Thank you for correcting me. Um, is there another wolf book in the future, or do you think that these you're going to let these sit and settle for a minute, um, and so people can fully engross in these stories? I don't think there's another wolf book in the near future because I think you know that there's a couple of things. Number one, um, the first book, the Pipestone Wolves, really told the story of the protected wolves being inside Banff National Park and kind of being in this, um, it's, a, it's a bit of an island of a protected area because now it's surrounded by development and industrial development all around it. And even within the National Park, the, the point of the Pipestone Wolf book was to show that wolves aren't really truly protected in there either because it's, you know, even our protected areas aren't really big enough anymore. And so then the Kootenai Wolf book expanded on that and then also talked about what's going on on provincial lands, on state lands, where 
it's a different jurisdiction and it's a bit more of a free-for-all in what happens with our apex predators. And I, I think, you know, those stories, I've now told those stories. For me to go into another book and tell those stories again, it would, it would either have to be a wolf pack that is completely out of protected areas um, and, and somewhere, you know, maybe completely off the grid. So that's a possibility down the road. Um, but for me right now, I've now shifted to other apex predators. So I had a bear book came out in 2020 called What Bears Teach Us with grizzly bear biologist, Sarah, Dr. Sarah Elmaligi. Um, and then I'm currently working on a cougar project. So kind of got these big three, you know, apex predators. And that's, um, you know, in 2018, I founded, uh, co-founded uh, the Exposed Wildlife Conservancy, which is a, a nonprofit wildlife advocacy group here in, in Canada. And we're focused mostly on issues in Western Canada, but we also are touching on stuff in the US. And we, we for instance, we have a, a trapping documentary coming out uh, this fall, um, which is really gonna hit home with wolf lovers because um, it really addresses the inequity in the system and, and the, you know, really the, the freedom that trappers have compared to non-consumptive users, um, you know, not really getting any you know, I can't drive down a logging road in Canada or in Montana, for that matter, and have much of a chance of seeing a wolf because they're all getting shot at and trapped. Um, you know, I can go to a national park and I might see one, but that's really the only spot now where you have a pretty decent chance of still actually physically seeing them. Um, so the uh, the conservancy is kind of looking at all the issues with the uh, with all three apex predators and and we're we're concentrating like I said in in Western Canada but this trapping documentary we've actually taking a much wider scope on it so it's focused on Alberta but then we've interviewed uh, you know Carter um, Niemeyer which is completely blank on Carter's last name. Carter Carter Niemeyer Carter yeah keep, Carter Niemeyer is yeah, uh, yeah one yeah. of our main interviewees uh, so you know he talks about the whole U.S. side of things and his trapping history um we uh um interviewed an, another biologist from the U.S. so we're, we're covering a much broader angle on that documentary even though it's sort of focused centrally on some of these Alberta stories but it, it can be applied across Western US, Western Canada, Northern Canada, Alaska, um, the, the principles that we uncover in it and, and some of the fallacies that we, we, we look at and we, you know, we, we kind of, we do tackle the sort of, there's sort of five main arguments that are behind the trapping industry. And we sort of lay all five of them bare and, and show, you know, just to give you an example, you know, trapping is an economic driver of, you know, rural communities. and. You know, we go into depth on that and show that no, it's not. <laughs> you know, the the you know the, the, the it's a hobby, really. It's you know, trappers are making no money at it. Um, if anything, they're spending more than they're making, especially now that fur prices have cratered in, in the international market in the last few years. So, it's looking at things like that and uncovering the truth. Um, so, so that's all going to be coming later in 2023 here, and then on into 2024. So. People that uh, you know go and look at my information there and can see all the books, and they'll be able to see links off to the conservancy. And uh, um, so that's that's one of the aspects that I'm working on fairly regularly. And this cougar project that's going to be my next next book project. So I'm out there. It's going to sound crazy to your followers, but I am uh, tracking cougars on foot. I'm not using hounds. I'm not using calls. I'm not using bait. I'm doing it all naturally. And uh, it's so far I've had a couple of successes, uh, so I just need a couple more, and I'll have enough for uh, for the book and to tell all the stories of all the different things I've encountered along the way and the the cougars I've got to watch. Yeah, I mean that's that's one I'll definitely. I know Stephen too. Cougars are our. I mean, it's like, that's probably our second favorite right there, right behind. Uh, well, well, I won't speak for you, Stephen, but I know uh, cougars are definitely definitely a second favorite of mine. So, John, when so to give everybody just sort of uh, what's coming up. So, so the the books just so everyone's aware. So you can go uh, just give everyone your your website, John, where they can see all of your your photos, the prints. He has cards. He's got tours and workshops. He does have a, a tab up there for wildlife conservant uh, conservancy. So you guys, when he's talking about, um, I'm sure some of the the things there. Just tell everybody where they can buy the books, look at your prints. 
talk about when that uh i know the pipestone wolf bulk you said is in 24 is having that new edition so that'll be available next year um they can still purchase the the kootenai wolf book correct that's still available for sale yeah that's available off um, my website or uh or amazon indigo any of the usual you know outlets usual. across the u.s canada internationally okay and what's it's john e marriott yeah john e marriott and then marriott is just like the hotel uh, so okay. if, you, if you've ever stayed at a Marriott hotel, then you know how to spell it. It's two R's, two T's. <laughs> and so the easiest way to find me, I mean, my website is wildernessprints.com, but really the easiest mm. way to find me, Facebook, Instagram, anything is just Google John Marriott. And you yeah. get two that'll show up and it'll be pretty obvious. One is the one who is the CEO of the Marriott hotel chain. And the other one is me. Um, so you can figure out which one's the photographer pretty easily. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I mean, listen, I, I would encourage anybody to, to find John on Instagram. His, again, his prints show up extremely well. Um, and just, you know, the stories that you tell, the, the advocacy work you do is, is great. John, just like with all of our guests, uh, my final question for you is, when you hear the word wolf, what is the thing that comes to your mind? Uh, iconic and wild. Um, to me neither the Canadian or American wilderness are what they are without the wolf. You know, you, you go to Switzerland, although Switzerland now has wolves again, <laughs> but that's the example I used to always use, you know, you go to the, the Alps and, you know, they're big, pretty mountains, but it just doesn't feel right. Uh, not having um, wolves roam around. And I, I, uh, you know, when I went to Berkeley back in the 1990s, I remember going up and going to forestry summer camp up in the Sierras and, uh, you know, going out hiking around and backpacking and stuff. And I spent a couple of months up there and, uh, and just thinking like the whole time, like all you've got is black bears. Like where are the grizzlies? Where are the wolves? Where, oh, and you have cougars, uh, mountain lions. But you know, I, it was, to me, it was a, it was a huge difference than hiking around in British Columbia or Alberta or Yellowstone, not having grizzly bears and not having wolves there. And now thankfully wolves are slowly stepping their foot back in the door and hopefully next thing we'll, we'll have some golden bears there again. Man. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It's, it's wild to see all these, these wolf populations starting to show themselves again, especially a across Europe. And it's, it's interesting when you see that some of these populations are exceeding some of the ones in the United States and how, yes, there are obviously political problems there and in, in terms of management and how we're going to view these species, view these populations. But the fact that the wolf that was once extirpated or ostracized in Europe is coming back almost uh, a tidal wave of uh, support and those populations are growing is just really, really awesome to see. And then hopefully North America can can learn a little bit from that. Uh, John, this has been great. Uh, we really appreciate, you know, again, good things come to those who wait. So even though it took us a minute to get to get this together, <laughs> it was really great just to hear your in-depth stories about, uh, especially about the two wolf books, but really about all the other wonderful advocacy work you're doing, all the wonderful things with bears and cougars and things like that. And it's just, it's really a pleasure and an honor to, to have you as one of our guests here uh, on the podcast. Really appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. I really yeah, appreciate you having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Just stick around for a minute when we sign off. But uh, how's to you all out there? And Stephen, I'll be with you next time. Bye, everybody. Looking for more information about Wolf Connection or the podcast? Please visit our website at wolfconnection.org where you can donate, sponsor a wolf, or become a volunteer.